Hello, and welcome to the Attractive Christians podcast, where we make Christianity a little less repulsive and a little more attractive and beautiful. I'm Annie, one of the producers. In this episode, Ethan sits down with special guest Dr. Ryan Tafalowski, and they discuss movies, social media, and a whole lot of theology. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. And hit us up on all the socials or send us a Gmail. We'd love to hear from you. Get right up on it. How's that? Yeah, like I put my nose almost on If you feel uncomfortable, then it's close enough. I do feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just go ahead and dive in. Welcome back to the Attractive Christians podcast. We have a really special episode today. We have my theology professor from last semester, Dr. Ryan Tafalowski. <laughs> wow. I assume this is the physically attractive Christians podcast, which is why I came. Is that... All of the above. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Um, and then we also have Jules on the mic helping out, hanging out, and Krista shooting the videos. So, and also, as always, thanks to Mark and Annie, our producers. Oh, and Tucker had his baby, baby Hosea. If you want to see a picture of him, Google white baby. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Because, I mean, that's my opinion is they all look the same to me. (laughs) But uh, no, I'm just kidding. He looks like a good baby. I don't know. <laughs> How do you judge that? He's healthy. He's... Round cheeks. You don't judge babies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is one good rule of thumb. Yeah. But anyway, congratulations to Tucker and Anna. They had a baby. Baby Hosea. Seven pounds, 18 ounces. I don't know. I don't know how the measurements work. They did I don't think you can have 18 ounces. <laughs> I think you run into a pound again. It's like yeah. having 14 inches. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Anyways, so we're going to forego all the normal segments we normally do and just have an extended conversation and see what happens with Dr. Tafalowski here with us. So we'll start off real simple. Just um, give us, you know, a couple minutes synopsis of your life, your background, who you are, what you've done, etc. Oh, sure. Uh, My life, man. Uh Speaking of white babies, I was one of those. Uh, I'm from Littleton, which, yeah, doesn't narrow it down. There were a lot of white babies when I was growing up there. Uh, yeah, so I'm from Littleton because my parents went to Denver Seminary in the 1980s. My Both parents, of them or just your dad? Uh, my, just my dad, yeah. But my mom, she carried the whole thing. She was working. She was a nurse while my dad was learning Greek. And nice. yep. Yep. There's a special place in heaven for academic wives. That's for sure. Yeah. Academic partners in general. Yeah. So my parents are from New Jersey. They moved to Littleton. Well, it was in Denver then, but they moved to Denver to go to seminary. I think the hope was that they would go back and uh, plant a church in New Jersey. But long story short, my, my parents were attending a small Baptist church during their seminary years. And uh, when my dad graduated, the pastor of that church left and they needed an interim pastor. Uh, And so my dad took that job. It was supposed to be for one year. And then he was the interim pastor for uh, 36 years. So I was raised in the church. Pastor's kid. uh, Some of the stereotypes fit. Some don't. I was raised in the faith and kind of I thought that I wanted to be a theologian when I was about 15 I had no idea what that meant or... <laughs> what did uh, you think it meant? I think I thought it meant reading books, uh, and I like <laughs> to read books. And I had this job where I worked 
at this baseball training facility. Best job I've ever had because you just sat there and uh, I read books and I was reading C.S. Lewis or something like that and just thinking, man, I would just love to do this all the time, which, yeah, uh, that that was my plan. I knew that you sort of had to go to school for that. So I went and got an undergraduate degree in theology. Uh, now, the thing about getting an undergraduate degree in theology is that it commits you to at least another degree, probably a couple more. So I ended up going to graduate school in the UK. I did a, a master's in theology there. I came back and uh, was looking for work. And uh, well, I don't know. Do you know how much a graduate theology degree is worth? It's worth about negative $40,000. So <laughs> I was uh, trying to find work. And like any self-respecting evangelical, I was working at Starbucks <laughs> and, uh, you know, working at a church too, doing youth ministry, which I was uh, terribly suited for. And, I thought uh, you were great. You came up with Death Ball. I did come up with a lot of amazing <laughs> games. Uh, what were some of your best games you came up with? Oh, we had a game called Charlie Ball, which is where this kid named Charlie used to sit against a brick wall <laughs> and we used to whip a basketball and try to get as close to his face as we could. And he wasn't allowed to move. <laughs> uh, were you trying to hit his face? No, or just get no. Close to his you're face? trying to get as close as you can. <laughs> so you lose all points if you hit him. Um, yeah. So. So Charlie Ball, I don't know. We played uh, a game called Greased Mallet, where there there was this kid in the youth group who, really amazing guy, big burly kid, really uh, strong, strong like an ox. And we used to play hockey in our sanctuary, and he would get really sweaty. And at the end of hockey night, he would take off his shirt and run around like a like a wild bull. <laughs> And we would try to corral him, and he was all sweaty, so we called it Greased Mallet. It was really dangerous. One kid broke his wrist. His name was Mallet or something. Yeah, right? his nickname was The Mallet. I met him. Yeah, yeah, good dude. Because um, he was named after another kid in the youth group who was like him but slightly bigger, and that kid's nickname was The Hammer. So we called, we called him The Mallet. Uh, yep, so I did youth ministry for a time with my lovely wife, who I met in, in college, Adrian, And uh, yeah, and then... Sort of did that for a number of years. Then we ended up going back to the UK where I studied for a PhD. And At Edinburgh? Yep. Edinburgh? Yeah, Edinburgh. Edinburgh? Yeah, like <laughs> like bruh, like when people say, like, what are you doing, bruh? It's like that. It makes no okay. sense phonetically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I studied there. I studied Nazi sympathizing Lutherans in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Althaus was your main guy, right? That's my guy. Spent more time with a theologian named Paul Althaus than any person should. You, you don't need to know about Paul Althaus. <laughs> nor can you read him. All stuff is still in German. So, uh, Yep, and then came back, moved back to Denver. Weren't planning to. We were kind of open to going anywhere. And after I finished my PhD, I was applying for jobs all over the place. Couldn't find anything. The job market, as you may know, if you're trying to go into academics in any field, is really hard. Theology especially and, uh, you know, any of the humanities. So I was not having much success. Now, my wife is super competent, really smart, and she had multiple job offers back in Denver. So we ended up back here. And uh, yeah, I, I worked a couple of jobs. I was adjuncting at the seminary. And long story short, I ended up taking over for my father at the church where I okay. grew up. So I'll look out on a Sunday morning, and half the women there have changed my diapers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is really rich and special, and I'm really grateful to get to do that. So I work as a pastor in the church where I grew up. Yeah, which is amazing. I, I never really thought that's something that would happen. And my wife never thought she was marrying a pastor, so joke's on her. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, uh, I also teach theology at Denver Seminary, uh, which I've done for a number of years. So I do both. And you have two kids. I do have two kids, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've got a daughter who's almost five who's uh, 
incredible. Uh, she's a supernova in every sense of that word. Uh, and I've got a son. Like a literal one? Like a exploding star? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, they're, uh, I guess I mean it metaphorically. But she, <laughs> she's, uh, she's really fiery and really smart. Nice. And uh, really clever. And we have a son who's two and a half who's like uh, the human incarnation of a golden retriever, if you nice. can think of that. Yeah. So every person is his favorite person. Oh. And he loves everyone the most. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And I, you finished your PhD in seventeen or eighteen? Uh, would have been the the summer of twenty seventeen. Okay, because that's when I first met you. Was when you came back here, mm. and I was the youth pastor at your dad's church, which yeah. is now your church. Yeah. So I knew you a while back. That was before I lived in Guatemala and everything, mm. and then had you for professor this last semester. And you know what Wes said about you? You know Wes. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, we were talking one day. I can't remember what he said. He said, if you ask 10 people at Denver Seminary who their favorite professor is, he said, 11 of them will say Tafalowski. <laughs> oh, that's really bad math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of him. Wow. Yeah. It was great. It was a good, it was a really good class. Yeah. I'm also having CJ on here in a couple weeks. Oh, amazing. So she'll have to fill these shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a real gift to teach there and mm-hmm. um, just wonderful getting to spend time with students and read and write and think about things that really matter. So, well, you did your 15 year old dream. You I did a it. Theologian. They said it couldn't <laughs> be done. Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, well, my first dream was to play for the Denver Nuggets. I think that's not going to come together because <laughs> I'm 39. hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Uh, so I think this this year, if it doesn't happen this year, I'll call it and I'll stay with theology. Uh, yeah, I feel really grateful for that, too. I mean, I, I remember. What did you call Jokic? Jokic? What's his name? <laughs> Jokic? Jokic. What did I call him? Yeah, like God's gift to mankind or something oh, like that. Oh, uh, it's possibly possible I said something <laughs> more extreme than that. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's my favorite basketball. He's my favorite athlete. Maybe he's my favorite person. I don't know him. But, uh, <laughs> How does Adrian feel about that? I think she gets it. I have a. <laughs> we have a life size, uh, great, much bigger than life size Jokic poster in our garage. So it's bigger the, than life size? Isn't he like eighteen feet yeah, tall? Yeah, it's a fat head. Do you know what that is? They're like these really big posters. Uh, so it's just his face, where he's making a, an expression of perfect indifference, which is what he does. <laughs> Isn't that like 99% of his life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So it's the first thing I see when I come home. But you also referred to, was it LeBron James as like humanity perfected or something? Well, oh. Like he's the best of us. In our discussion on the infinite qualitative distinction yeah. between God and humans. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's true. I did illustrate it with LeBron James. Uh, just making the point that uh, when we think about God, we're not thinking about a creature. We're not thinking about a version of us, but except like with everything turned up to 11, right? Like like your favorite professor. Like your favorite professor, <laughs> right? He's a, he's a, God is a different order of being. He's not a creature. So I just said, you know, imagine the most impressive human being you can as a specimen and, you know, prime LeBron James is close to that. It's not like God is like that, but more. It's that he's something qualitatively different than we are. So Exactly. <laughs> How do you feel about those? I don't know what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, neither do they because they don't have headphones on. <laughs> oh, we just assume he's pushing some sort of applause or booing, or we never know. Yeah, that was the harp. <laughs> what do they mean? I don't know. <laughs> they just came programmed into this thing, and I just push them when I feel like it. It's a lot of power. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, another lowball question before we dive into the deep stuff. Oh, and by the way, I, I asked you about this over email. At one one class this past semester, uh, you said, uh, do you guys need a break? I don't need a break. I'm a theology machine. I could do this all day. <laughs> I think those were the exact words. Um, and so I told you over email, we're going to be here for a while. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> with the theology machine himself. So for last lowball question, tell us about your favorite movie. Oh, my favorite movie. Well, is that different than the one you've seen the most? Yeah, I think you can answer it differently because your favorite movie is like what you would like people to think your favorite movie is. Yeah. Whereas like the movie you've seen the most times, that's actually who you are, right? And you can't you can't sort of control the narrative. So uh, you can give us both. Okay. Well, this has been complicated since kids, right? So Okay, w- minus those, because those aren't necessarily your choice to oh, watch. Oh, man, yeah. We've got a tradition called Sabbath movie where my daughter gets to pick a movie every Sunday, and we have to watch it. <laughs> Is it always the same one? <laughs> she's she's broadening her, her horizons now, but for like a year, she chose the Octonauts movie every Sunday. <laughs> If you, don't, if you don't know I'm, what the Octonauts no are. Idea. That's horrible. They are, uh, yeah, they're, they're uh, sea creatures who save other sea creatures from mild sea peril. <laughs> um, and so we did that for a year, like 50, 50 straight Sundays. So that might win right now. Before that, the movie I've seen the most time is, is uh, a movie called Bloodsport with Jean-Claude Van Damme, who's an action star from the 80s and 90s. Do you guys know who Jean-Claude Van Damme yeah. is? Obviously. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Some, yeah, sometimes students don't know who that is, and it really makes me despair of our future <laughs> if people don't know who Van Damme is. It's a, yeah, it's a kickboxing movie. I used to watch it with my friend Derek every Sunday after church. Oh, so that like, was your Sunday for like Sabbath six years. Movie. Oh, yeah, Sabbath movie. And then we used to recreate all the fights on his trampoline after. Nice. Yep. And we stopped doing that since kids, so I was like 33, 34. <laughs> um, like when you were my age, you yeah. finally finally yeah. gave it. Yeah, that's hung right. up the tramp. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, my favorite movie. You can say Bloodsport again if you want. It actually might be Bloodsport. I'm trying to think of. I really, really like Prime Chevy Chase. So it might be National Lampoon's Vacation. What? Or Christmas Vacation. Do you? This you guys don't like this? No. What do you like? Gen <laughs> Z? What you don't like? You don't Ouch. like what? You guys don't like Chevy Chase? I just feel like that's... I wish I had known this before I, haven't I agreed to come on. It. You haven't seen National I Lampoon's know. Vacation? Mm-mm. So like, I might like them. Who knows? I feel like it's like prime rerun on TV on a, like the middle of the afternoon like type of He thinks movie. bougie with his movies, though. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all Norwegian movies no one's ever heard of. <laughs> Yeah, well. Krista likes them. That's what counts. Krista likes what? The Lampoon movies? Okay. Okay. Not to throw Krista under the bus. Yeah, you're on. Not to throw Krista under the bus, but she said that her number one favorite movie of all time is The Fast and Furious 5. Specifically 5. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I have never seen. So uh, that is way more hipster than any Norwegian movie. Hipster, yeah, like a hipster would choose that. Ironically, I don't. I haven't seen the fifth one. I just saw the first one. There's ten. There's ten. Yeah, X. Dang, I've seen the first. Not acceptable. Yeah, the Fast and Furious and the Saw movies both came out with ten last year. Yeah. They oh. both hit X and wow. both views. That means X. stop. No more. Done. <laughs> Not because they're bad, just because that's too many. They've run out of ideas. <laughs> Aren't they using like a hologram of Paul Walker now? Are they? Is that true? That's so no, sad. they didn't. 
No, they used his brother to finish. Oh, oh really? Oh, yeah. Nobody would notice. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Oh, man. Okay, so as an aside, Dr. Tafalowski, I don't know what to call you still. It's weird. Because I first knew you as Ryan and then had you as a professor. Yeah, I think Reverend Doctor is fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, do you, uh, are you tired of talking about your dissertation? No. No? You want to give us like a couple minute rundown of it? Like for, for the, not for the theologian, but for the, for the average person. For us. And then I have a couple follow-up questions for it. Sure. Okay. Well, my, my dissertation, to be fair, dissertations are not for normal people. Right. Like this this is not a book that a person would read. That's why I specified that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a book for a that, real person. That other scholars would read or a research library would buy and then no one would ever look at it ever again. I wrote on uh, so I'm interested in questions of political theology and I'm interested in broadly questions of Christ and culture, how should Christians faithfully respond to pressures of the day, right? Be they political or social or whatever. So I've, I've always been interested in questions like this. And I, I wanted, you know, in college, I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you guys have read some Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read The Cost of Discipleship. And this just like blew my mind. I just thought, man, like this is such a vital, incredibly urgent, powerful vision of Christian life and faith living itself out in concrete terms. Like I have got to know more about this. So I thought, you know what? Well, can I'll you do? pause there and expand yeah. on that a little bit? Because oh, what, what was it about that that drew you in so much? Sure. Um, for people who haven't read the book. Yeah. Uh, in that book, Bonhoeffer makes a, a distinction uh, that's become quite famous between what he calls cheap grace and costly grace. And he says that there is a form of sort of cultural Christianity uh, that requires nothing of you, right? You just sort of show up, you receive, you're there maybe to be entertained. You're sort of passive in the whole experience. You, And then you leave and then your life doesn't change materially at all, right? But since, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, well then I'm in, right? I'm in, I'm in the club, even though I'm not really doing anything, right? That's what he calls cheap grace. Costly grace is what Bonhoeffer sees to be grace that makes a demand of us, not in the sense that we have to earn our salvation or anything like this, but once we commit to the way of Jesus, then we ought to commit to, to walking as Jesus walked. That's first John's language. But, and that for Bonhoeffer meant that like, you don't get to be a spectator. You don't just get to receive, like you actually have to jump into the fray. And that also means that you might have to make difficult decisions under imperfect conditions. Uh, you got to take responsibility for your life, basically, right? And so I thought, wow, this is just like so powerful, you know, because I had been raised in a sort of American evangelical context that has had, I don't think it's any secret, cheap grace problems, right? You know, the the historian Rodney Stark calls it freeloader syndrome, right? You just mm. show up and get all the benefits, but you don't actually contribute anything, right? And I, you know, that made sense to me. And, you know, we also, I had been raised in a sort of youth group culture that was, basically gave a, a strictly negative account of Christian discipleship. You know, we just, to be a Christian disciple is to not do certain things, right? We don't, well, I'm a Baptist, so we don't dance, drink, or chew, or run with girls who do, right? <laughs> so the whole point of youth group is so that you don't go to parties. And that's fine. You know, it's like, I don't think people should be getting hammered either. And I don't think you should go around and have sex with tons of people that you don't know either. It's not that I'm for those things, but I just thought, you know, like here is a, a positive vision of what it means to follow Jesus. So I, I got totally enthralled with it. I read a bunch of Bonhoeffer and I thought, oh, I got to write a PhD on this. So I had that idea. And then, you know, as I started to apply to PhD programs, I realized like so did everybody else in the universe, right? So <laughs> everybody loves Bonhoeffer. And so the woman that I ended up studying with, she ended up being my supervisor. 
uh, a scholar at Edinburgh named Hannah Holtschneider, who's a, a scholar of Judaism, really brilliant thinker. She said, hey, why don't you look at these these people on the other side, right? Everybody likes the heroic. You also you know. looked at Bart, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I dealt with Bart some in my dissertation. And Bart and Bonhoeffer belong to this group of pastors called the Confessing Church that basically – that's a long and complicated story, but they, they, they basically resisted Nazi infringement into German church life. So I ended up looking at theologians on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. That's called the German church struggle, right? Because when the Nazis came to power in 1933, one of the first things they did was undertake this big program where they tried to coordinate all of the organs of public life and bring them into line with Nazi ideology. So the media, the judiciary, uh, higher education, and of course, churches. And some churches capitulated really enthusiastically. Others resisted. That's the confessing church. And then there was this whole kind of murky middle. And I looked at theologians that were kind of in the murky middle. And so Alt House was one of those? Yeah. I think Alt House was just, um, he's an interesting guy. He's painted in the literature very often as a sort of rabid Nazi theologian. I don't think that's right at all. I think he was just, I think he was a conservative theologian, both politically and theologically who was dealing with some yeah, Lutheran theological ideas that can really go toxic if they're not kept uh, within certain bounds. And so I think actually, I think Althaus misjudged Nazism and ended up regretting it. I mean, I know for sure he regretted it. I've read him say it, but by then it was kind of too late. So I, w- I was interested in him because I think we all like to think of ourselves as reasonable and kind of uh, centrist. It doesn't matter who you talk to, you know, they could be radically uh, progressive in their values or uh, radically conservative. And they'll say, oh, I'm sort of a centrist, right? I like to see things from both sides. Everybody <laughs> likes to say that about themselves. But I really think this is true of him, right? And I think he he got caught up in a movement that he did not understand, didn't appreciate. And um, while I think the resources of Christian faith should have helped him to see it, they didn't. And so in some senses, I want to be careful here. In some senses, I think he's a sympathetic figure because he just he just got something really terribly wrong and I think we're all susceptible to getting things really terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting because last week I had my grandma on here who <laughs> obviously – well, she was born in 1935. Wow. So was alive for – you know, I mean she was a baby and a young girl for a lot of it, for a lot of – in World War II. And I asked her, how much did you know about – World War II, Nazis, and the Holocaust when you were those ages, mm. right, while they while they were actually happening. Oh, interesting. So what would, like for, I don't know where he lived in relationship to certain, the concentration camps, right? Mm-hmm. But what would the view have been for them in the late 30s, early 40s of Nazism and did they know about the concentration camps? Did they know that all these people were being shuttled off and yeah. – uh, you know, executed? Well, it's a difficult question to answer because it depends on kind of where people are and what kind of access they have. Now, one of the things that's that's kind of damning is that the Nazis were extraordinarily upfront about their platform, right? So if you wanted to know what they intended to do, you could just read their literature or go to one of their slogans. They weren't hiding it, right? There's there's a scholar named Jeffrey Herf who's written a book called The Jewish Enemy and he shows in that book that the Nazis were just telling you what they intended to do and he shows images of posters that say the Jews are our misfortune like posted at a bus stop and things like this right so in one sense the radical anti-semitism of the National Socialist Party was no secret and that's because it was a sentiment that was pretty widely shared with ordinary Germans now Althaus, for his part, I, I, I read some of his private correspondence and some of his journals, and I read a deposition 
where someone wrote a, a letter of reference on his behalf because he got he lost his job after the war because of his Nazi because of perceived Nazi sympathies. And then he was reinstated. And one of these letters, this person said, I Professor Althaus finds the Nazis personally off putting. He doesn't like their rhetoric. He thinks they're brutish. He thinks they're thugs. But what it came down to is he really thought that the Nazis could restore Christianity's place in culture, which he thought had eroded. So he was willing to live with a lot uh, on the promise that particularly the early Hitler made that he was going to restore Christianity to its place of prominence. So I think what happened is he sort of held his nose and went along with it because he thought that the cultural gains would outweigh the risks. Hmm. Obviously, I don't think it's fair. Well, I I believe Althaus when he says that he never could have anticipated what the Nazis did. Hmm. And he does say this in a couple different places. Then again, other scholars have argued that it was pretty obvious what the Nazis intended to do. And Althaus was really well aware of early legislation against Jews, which was really disenfranchising them. So, for example, he wrote a theological opinion that more or less endorsed the law that said that Jews could not serve as pastors or professors. Right. So he's aware that civil liberties are being taken. Christian pastors? Yeah. Like, so Jewish ethnically? Yeah, pastors of Jewish descent. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and he, he he doesn't think it's because Jews can't be Christians or anything like this. And there were theologians saying that sort of thing in the 30s. It was just him. He didn't think that a Jewish pastor could credibly lead a German congregation because of the perceived tension between the two groups. So he didn't think it was pastorally expedient, but still an absolutely egregious opinion, which has really tarnished his legacy. So I have a bunch of questions. So as you're talking, obviously listening to this in 2024 and 19 and 20, you know, 2020, um, like the, there seems to be a lot of parallels, both with the specific presidential candidate as who wants to restore Christian, uh, what would you say, the, the pride and dignity mm-hmm. of, yeah, quote unquote values. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, and, but, you know, the dignity of Christianity back to this nation. And you even had in Charlottesville them chanting blood and soil, which was the Nazi, one of the Nazi um Things that they would chant, right? Mm-hmm. Blood and soil. Yeah. Um, so what – I guess tell, tell us what are some of the similarities between 1930s Germany and today and then what are some of the differences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get asked about this a lot, uh, especially since it's an election year. I'll start with the the differences because I think they are substantial. Number one, American Christianity is extremely different than German Christianity for a number of reasons. Number number one is that, uh, you know, it's part of our, our articles of incorporation as a nation that we have the separation of church and state. That doesn't mean that religion has no place in American public life. And it doesn't mean that churches don't have a prominent place in American social life. In fact, there are provisions, for example, in our tax code that incentivize people to be involved in churches, right? So it's not like um, a completely secularist vision, but it does mean that there is no one state-sanctioned church. One of the things we have to understand about Christianity in Germany and lots of places elsewhere in Western Europe is that these are state-sanctioned churches. So pastors and professors of theology are state employees. They're federal federal employees, yeah. So when the, the National Socialists came to power and they tried to co-opt the church, it wouldn't be quite the same as it would be here. They were co-opting what was already a sort of formal organ. So that's number one. Number two... 
you know, we're complaining about inflation because we like we go into King Supers and we get sticker shock. And that's true. But you have to understand, like in <laughs> right after the First World War, so call it 1919, inflation is so catastrophically high that people I mean, cash is almost well, it's basically worthless. It's not basically worthless. It is worthless. People are burning it for fuel instead of using it to buy things. And you'll mm. you'll get images of people bringing a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy like a loaf of bread or Man. something. Right. So they, there's this there's this economic devastation. And then there's also this sense of national humiliation. So after the, the First World War, the allied victors put into the Versailles settlement, the, the, the treaty that ended the First World War. They put in a provision that Germany had to take full responsibility for the war. And pay massive, cartoonishly high reparations that were just never going to, I mean, that, and that, that, yeah, sent their economy into a tailspin and it, it compounded all the problems with inflation and everything just cratered. But more than that, it was like a psychic wound on the, on the German sort of national identity. Uh, they felt tremendously ashamed about this. Althaus was really upset by this. He was a chaplain in the First World War, and he really thinks that the allied, uh, allied victors had been really cruel and unfair to Germany. So you've got this terrible sense of grievance, and that's one point of contact mm -hmm. to our moment. And I, I want to be clear here, and not just because I'm being diplomatic. I really do believe this. This politics of grievance is a real problem for us, not just on the right, but also on the left, mm -hmm. right? So on the right, it's obvious, right? There is a sense of kind of the America that I knew has been taken from me or values are changing quickly. And by the way, I don't want to dismiss that. I think that's that's whether a person is right about that is a debate we can have. But that sort of impulse, one can understand the anger. But on the left, it tends to look like sanctimoniousness, right? So I have the right views. People who don't have views like me are stupid, right? Uh, and they're bad people, right? So we've got this sort of politics of contempt and grievance. So that's one point of, of similarity. Another would be, I think Althaus ends up making the decisions he makes because he's having an anxious response to mm -hmm. pluralism, right? He's... He's really um, unsettled that his society is changing. He's really concerned about immigration. Um, he's really concerned about, uh, for example, 1920s Weimar Germany has quite a bustling gay scene, right? So he's really concerned with, with changing sexual mores. And he, uh, he thinks, and here's another key similarity, I think. He thinks that Germans are an intrinsically Christian people, right, in their essence, not just that they have a Christian culture, but that Germans are – Jules, I'm going to use a big word here just to <laughs> prove that I've been to divinity Sweet. school. All right. So uh, <laughs> he thought that Germans were ontologically Christian. I know that word. Hey, all right. Good. So, uh, yeah, it's not that they happen to be Christians. It's that there's something deep-seated mm -hmm. in their essence that is Christian. Mm -hmm. And Where did they get that from? That stemmed from Luther in some way? For or? sure. Yeah, yeah, you're very right to make that connection, right? Mm. Uh, Althaus will say, and others like him, that the Germans have this sort of tradition of faith that is kind of unrivaled, and they've created a level of theological genius that has kind of mm. been unrivaled by any other nation. And not just Luther, right? He goes back all the way to the to the high Middle Ages with the conversion of Clovis, right? The king oh, of wow. the Franks, yeah. right? Wow. So, yeah. Like the 500s, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a similarity, too. I think part of why we're having such a difficult time discerning kind of how we should engage these really combustible topics is that I, I believe many Christians think that America is ontologically Christian in that same way, mm -hmm. um, that we 
are a Christian nation, not just at the level of our values and our history, but like as some sort of kind of deep-seated essential level. And so if that's what you believe, and I want to be clear, I think the question, is America a Christian nation, is an extraordinarily complicated question, right? I think the answer is a very, very complicated yes and no. (laughs) Um, But if you really do believe that, you know, we are supposed to be a nation, like a city on a hill, right? You'll get a lot of images of Israel used and applied to America. If you think that. Like and then, from the Bible, you mean Israel, mm-hmm. not not the current news pictures. Sure, right. Yes. Israel. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. The, the biblical people of God, Israel. If you think that and you see the rise of pluralism and you see a lot of people who believe different things than you do and who have very different values than you do and who don't look like you do and, and perhaps speak other languages that you don't speak, the whole thing is, is incredibly uh, disruptive and uh, disorienting, right? And so I think there's some key parallels here. And so I think the key for us will be how do we make responsible political decisions and how do we do faithful public engagement and maintain some gospel sanity when we're really seeing an uptick in sort of, well, a theologian of the last century, Leslie Newbigin, predicted that that before his lifetime was over, he wrote this in the 1960s, we would see the rise of what he called the political religions, where people would be less and less religious in the traditional sense, and and they don't affiliate with religious institutions, and they channel all of that hunger for the transcendent into their political ideologies, right? Mm. And I I think Newbigin has been exactly right about that. Um, And that's happening on all sides of the spectrum, and not just here. Actually, we're witnessing it uh, globally. He was a missionary in India, right? Yep. And he kind of came back after several decades away and everything was so different. Yeah, he was from the Midlands of England and then he went uh, – was a missionary in in India for most of his life, many, many decades. And then he came back and he he was convinced that actually Britain and Western Europe and the Western world generally was a more urgent mission field than India was <laughs> because wow. because it had secularized so quickly. And there were all these alarming developments uh, among them, the rise of the political religions. He has some great insights. Yeah. He's awesome. Everybody needs to read Leslie Newbigin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stop listening now and read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny because I was listening to a podcast today and the, he was talking uh, – it was Jordan Peterson hmm. who's not a pronounced Christian, let's say. But he was talking about the Pharisees and particularly – Several, the several times where they pray publicly mm-hmm. for attention or to, to draw attention to their moral and their virtuous lives that they live. And, he, and Peterson was talking about how, just like you said, the political religions, that this is what we see now, especially on the left, but yeah. more and more on the right as well in mm-hmm. a different way, where I was looking at someone's Instagram earlier and it was like, click here to donate to Gaza or uh, – Palestine or yeah. some, whatever it was. And they're always posting on their Instagram story like, here's how you help with whatever. Here's how you help fight racism. Here, like, And it's like announcing – we call it virtue signaling, but mm-hmm. it's the same idea as the Pharisees mm-hmm. at the time of Jesus, but in, in a completely secular yes. format. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a thinker who's really helped me here, a guy named David Zoll. You guys would really like David Zoll, I think. He's a theologian, but he's a media critic. So he's really, he has a podcast. Uh, it's called Mockingbird Ministries, and he it's a pop culture and theology ministry, basically. So he writes reviews of movies and albums. It's like Pitchfork, but written by like a theologian. Right? Do you guys remember That's Pitchfork? Cool. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, yeah, he's an interesting guy. And he wrote a really helpful book a couple years back called Seculosity. 
And in it, he argues that um, as we become less and less traditionally religious, we're not getting any less spiritual. We're just rechanneling those impulses. And so he talks about how all kinds of things that used to be just sort of neutral have now been tasked with sort of bearing the weight of justifying ourselves. And he means that in a religious sense, right? So uh, what's a good example? He has a chapter on parenting, which is wonderful, right? Uh, Tucker, if you're listening, right? Uh, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to notice this right away. Parenting culture in America is totally insane. It's yeah. just like absolutely out of control. My dad calls it child worship. <laughs> That's so good. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Larry. That's good. You know, I remember this when we were pregnant with our first, we went to these birthing classes at um, this kind of like kind of granola birthing center. My wife and I had to compromise because my my wife, God bless her. She's like such a healthy and conscientious person. And she wanted to have a home birth. And I was like, is this the Civil War? Like, why would we <laughs> why would we do that? Let's have a home birth. Let's have a birth at a hospital where there are doctors. <laughs> uh, and so we had we kind of wrangled with this and we we compromised and we went to this sort of birthing center that was associated with a hospital. But they had midwives and doulas and we were going to these classes, these prenatal classes. And this doula gets up and gives this like talk. It's about breastfeeding. And we didn't have any kids. We didn't know. Right. It was all new to us. And she basically said, like, you know, if you love your child, like you'll breastfeed. And if you want what's best for them and if you care about them, and if you want them to do well and if you choose not to breastfeed, like that's OK. But like. You're a war criminal. You should have your kids taken. Right. And so this is what Zal means. Right. It's not like it's not just that like you can choose to breastfeed or not. It's like that is laden with all kinds of like existential weight that doesn't belong there. Yeah. And he says about politics, it used to be that we politics was simply that it was how do we come up with policies that will govern our common life? But now they're being asked to sort of tap into the transcendent and they're being used as self-justifying stories to your point, right? So it's not just that I vote Democrat, for example. It's that I need to be seen as the kind of person who holds these political views, right? It's not that I vote Republican. It's that I am not associated with this group over here or whatever, right? And so uh, that kind of virtue signaling, which is maybe a tired term, but it's pointing to an important reality is that we are looking to other things to sort of justify our existence when, you know, in Christian faith, it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that can do that, yeah. right? That's the only thing that can justify you, that can make things right again. And so I think that's a big problem, right? I, I, especially, yeah, especially at our, our cultural moment. Yeah. I had this question written down and that's a actually perfect transition into it, but um you a couple times throughout the class referenced loosely things like like you'd be kind of listing things off and you'd be like like what is your relationship with your iPhone like what's your relationship with social media I think you said at one class you're like the Bible doesn't mm-hmm. tell you what your relationship with your iPhone should be like and yet there are theological implications there so and then mm-hmm. another time you said social media is one of the worst things for your formation as a Christian <laughs> which is probably accurate <laughs> um, could you expand on those a little bit and also define formation. Sure. Okay. Uh, so the first thing, sometimes that comes up when we're talking about uh, the doctrine of scripture and evangelicals have a high view of scripture, which we should, it's the word of God for the people of God. And one of the doctrines that emerged out of the reformation is this doctrine called perspicuity. Mm-hmm. And that's the doctrine that means that the Bible is reasonably clear. Uh, that's a very crass generalization, but (laughs) the Bible is reasonably clear, meaning that we interpret more obscure scriptures in light of clearer scriptures. When we interpret the scriptures with the tradition, basically 
an average person without specialized theological training can read the Bible and basically know what it's about. That doesn't mean that there won't be hard passages. There, uh, you know, everybody has the experience. Even people with immense theological education and experience know what it's like to open the Bible and be like, I do not know what's happening here, right? I don't know how this fits in. Perspicuity doesn't deny any of that. It just means that the Bible is clear on what it teaches. Namely, what does it mean for humans to be reconciled with a holy God? That's what the story is about. Now, perspicuity has sometimes been taken to mean in a sort of corrupted form that the Bible speaks directly to sort of any question that anyone could ever ask, mm. right? And so we have a tendency to treat the Bible as like a, a like a big, I don't know, like a instruction manual or something, right? So I have a question about this aspect of parenting my kids. Like, let, let me just check the concordance, look up verses like for kids won't listen, and then see <laughs> what's there. And that's not a very helpful approach to the scriptures because there are all kinds of issues that a disciple of Jesus has to face for which the the Christian resource has a lot of resources, but not in a sort of concordance way, right? So if you think like, I, you know, how should I think about my iPhone? You can't look it up and be like, iPhone, <laughs> Second Corinthians 4, Paul being like, don't use your iPhone that much, right? <laughs> like, so... That means that we've got to do some theological reflection. So it means that we've got, to, we've got to draw on the witness of the scriptures. And even though they're not going to speak directly to that sort of technology, they will talk about, well, what are humans for? What makes for flourishing humanity? What corrupts and distorts our humanity? Uh, what is our attention for? What are we supposed to be thinking about? What are our lives supposed to be oriented towards? And so if you start thinking about those kinds of questions— well, then you can you can extrapolate and say, man, this iPhone, it sure seems like it's not opening me up to the world. It, it sure seems like it's curving me in on myself, right? Which is very famously how Luther defined sin is the heart curved in on itself, mm. right? And that, that actual posture where we're hunched over our phones is a, quite a telling metaphor, right? Or I don't know, my, <laughs> my, my wife and I uh, have this game where we're really trying to be cognizant of this because we have children, right? And our kids, I know they're going to be addicted to phones. I'm like, I, I know this, but we just want it to take longer than it otherwise would. And so we're trying to be careful with how we use our phones. But sometimes at the end of a long day, like we're not right. I, my big thing is I'll check NBA scores. So I like to be self-righteous because I don't have any social media, but I'll scroll <laughs> NBA Twitter for like, an, like indefinitely, unless you stop me. It's in my wife. so boring. <laughs> yeah, what the heck? I know I've got a problem. Uh, and Adrian, you know, might be on her phone too. And so we do this thing where if the other person is very clearly checked out doing that thing where they're just going like, Oh, uh-huh. Like, yeah, well, she'll say something like, Oh, and then I'm going to go meet my boyfriend later. And I think we're going to go out to dinner and I'll be like, okay, so have a good time. Cause I'm on Twitter <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, and so it's very clear that that's actually taking me away from the actual world, those actual relationships, mm -hmm. right. Into a world that is real, but in a sort of bizarro sense. And so yeah, when I say social media inhibits formation, what do I mean by formation? That's a really good question. You should have Dr. Mulhern on to talk about that. Do you know her? Mm -mm. Oh, man. She's a Jedi. <laughs> uh, formation, all I mean in this sense is the destiny of all those who are in Christ, which is to be conformed to his image, to, sh to share the same shape as Jesus's life. I think that looks different for every person. Right. Ethan fully conformed to Jesus looks different than Ryan fully conformed to Jesus, which will look different than Jules fully conformed to Jesus. Right. One of the things that's amazing about Christian theology is that it does not hold a view of the future where we just like become less of ourselves or we dissipate or we don't become selves at all. Mm -hmm. 
we actually become more fully ourselves. We become more alive when we're united to Jesus and all of our particularities and all of our idiosyncrasies. So, you know, does social media help me become conformed to the image of Jesus? I don't know. I don't use it. And I speak only for myself here. I don't use it because for me, it does not cultivate the kind of humility that I see in Jesus Christ. It does not foster flourishing because it it takes things that really should not be measurable, which is like my sense of security, my identity in Jesus, and tries to give metrics to it, right? For the same reason, I don't ever track metrics on sermons, how many people view them. I just re- just recently had a book come out and they give you this big questionnaire about your social media following. And I just had to keep writing zero. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the poor editor was like, is there any way we could get the word on this book out? And I was like, I'd be happy to send letters to my friends. <laughs> I don't, so I'll uh, promote it for you. Yeah. And I'm not trying to denigrate anybody who uses social media. I think that followers of Jesus can use it responsibly, but I think there's questions that are well worth thinking about there, right? Like, does this tool actually make me more like Jesus or less. I know that sounds simplistic, but I find that for me, it corrupts me away yeah. from the image of Jesus. Yeah. Real quick. Can you just watch your hands on the oh, things that's picking them up and your watch? Bang oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I studied fascist, so I get really <laughs> fired up. You just get really jazzed. Yeah. Like Dwight like in the Dwight. office. <laughs> Blood alone moves the wheels of history. <laughs> Yeah. A scene. It is. I show that for my students when I, I forgot <laughs> when. I show it to them maybe just for fun. I don't know. Incredible. <laughs> what context do you teach in? Um, I teach middle school language arts. Wow. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> That's incredible. Some good rhetoric lessons in that. Oh, uh, yeah. That oh, yeah. Episode. Yeah. It's <laughs> a good time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You ready for another big one? I am. Are you good on time still? I have to go probably in like 10 minutes. Oh, okay. So much for the theology machine. <laughs> there is an end point. <laughs> I'm also putting kids to bed. Machine. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. A theology machine with a family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we have 10 minutes to tackle this one, which I really wanted to um, to hit. I don't know. There's a lot that I wrote down. Pick the best one. Okay. We can do two. We can do two. Speed round. Speed okay. Round. I don't know if you'll be able to do more than one. If you had to describe why the Trinity is so important to a layperson— how would you, what would you say? Why is it so important as a Christian? Uh, I think we're, I think we're at time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, Okay. Why is the Trinity important? Okay. Number one, uh, the Trinity is important because that's who God is. All right. So the God of Christian faith is father, son, and Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we, we, we unwittingly tend to think of God, the father as God, and then Jesus and the spirit as kind of ways that God makes himself manifest to us or something like this. And and it is true the New Testament can talk like that, right? That the, the Spirit is the revealer of Jesus and that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But what what the scriptures incrementally reveal, which has been foundational to the Christian tradition since the very beginning, is that the God of Christian faith is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I realize that the Trinity is hard to talk about. It's very hard to conceptualize. It, uh, it'll make you nauseated pretty quickly if you try to think too hard about it. But it's a bit like telling the most important person in your life that it's not worth me trying to really understand who you are because you're really deep and complex, hmm. right? So number one, we try, we try to understand the Trinity because this is who God has revealed himself to be. Number two, and there's more we could say, but number two is that only a God who is triune can perform the gospel, hmm. right? So 
lots of theologians have pointed this out, probably most famously Augustine, right? The saying, you know, we already alluded to first John once, John says, God is love. Augustine says, that's only a meaningful statement if we've got a plurality of persons here, mm. right? It's actually nonsensical to speak about God being love unless he both gives and receives love in his own person, in his own essence. And it's also, it's also important because the gospel depends on God sending his son in the power of the spirit. All three persons have a vital role to play in what theologians call the economy of salvation. And if God is a monad, right, uh, God can't perform any of those actions. And so I know it's hard to think about, but it's who God is and it helps us to explain what God does. Yeah, that's good. Nice. As a lay person, I would understand that, I think. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we spent several class, several three-hour classes talking about this. So <laughs> that was a great summation. That was very concise. Good nice summary. Job. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay, I have, I have two more quicker ones. Okay, now. let's do it. Um, <laughs> do you have a favorite Bible or theological fun fact? Like, for example, one that you told us was how the book of James should actually be called the book of Jacob, but King James wanted that to be named after him. That is totally true, right? You go read the Greek text, it's Jacobus, right? Which, of course, right? How many Hebrew boys running around in the first century are named James, <laughs> right? Brother James. <laughs> yeah, his name's Jacob. Uh, that's a good one. Oh, wow. Um, all right, here's one. Uh, one of my favorite passages in the whole world is 1 John 3. One through four, right, where he says, "Hey, uh, beloved, uh, what behold, what manner of love the Father has uh, given unto us that we might be called children of God?" You know that passage, right? So that usually gets translated in our English Bibles as like, you know, what manner of love, or look how the Father has loved us, so that we might be called children of God. But in the Greek, what James actually says, sorry, uh, what John actually says there is, "From what country is love like this?" Hmm. which I really love because it sort of suggests that that John is marveling at the love of the Father. And he just says, like, where on earth does love like this come from, right? Hmm. From what country, what, from what parts hmm. is there love like this? And, of course, the implication is that the it's high not, country. Yeah. yeah, high country. I like that. It's not from these parts. Um, okay, I'll give you another one uh, that's theological. The guy I wrote my dissertation on, Paul Althaus. You have to understand Germany, uh, German professors, even today, are like rock stars, all right? He, you know, the, he had uh, multiple secretaries working for him who typed up all his correspondence and his lecture notes. And this is a really, really prestigious position to be a theology professor at a major university. And uh, there's a real culture of respect for professors. And Althaus, allegedly, I just read this in the notes of one of his students I was reading the journals of one of his students, a guy named Helmut Thielica, who's my favorite theologian ever. He says he, he was a, a TA for Althaus. Yeah, he was Althaus's wow. doctoral student. Yeah, amazing. And uh, he said that Althaus would come into the lecture ten or fifteen minutes late, so he would make all the students wait, sort of like like you go to a concert and you're out there waiting, and the concert's supposed to start at like nine or whatever, but like Mariah Carey stumbles out there at like nine forty-five or ten, right, <laughs> just to show that she's important and you're not, right? It's that same, same sort of deal. So he would wait, and then he would walk in, 
And uh, the students were supposed to like erupt and stand and like clap and stuff. Wow. And if they didn't do it sufficiently, he would walk back out and like wait longer <laughs> and then he, would, <laughs> then he would come back in. So I'm going to think about starting to do that. Yeah, you never do that for us. Yeah, I think it's probably time. <laughs> Spring 2024. Was a rock star, would he play alternative? Uh, <laughs> or house. Or house. Music. <laughs> Mine was better. <laughs> I think they're equally Alt bad. or house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, last one. Do you have a secret heresy that you're secretly partial to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, or is there like a, a, a smaller thing than a heresy, like a baby heresy? Yeah, what would that be called? Um, I won't tell young. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, okay, uh, that I'm partial to, no. There, it, there's one that um, there's a Christological heresy called Eutychianism, which basically posits that the two natures of Jesus, the human and the divine natures, have become so closely aligned that they're basically indistinguishable. They sort of meld into this third thing. And that's a heresy that's been that's been condemned by the church universal because we speak of two natures in Jesus without confusion. But um, there's an opposite heresy called Nestorianism, which holds that the two natures of Jesus are so clearly and cleanly defined that they basically are separated. And so, you know... You could speak of the divine nature of Jesus doing something while the human nature does something else. Okay. And that doesn't work either because you've got one acting subject. You've got one person performing all the verbs, right? So Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm healing you in my divinity and I'm having this sandwich in my humanity. Right? He's <laughs> one person. The heresy that it's very, very delicate. Following Luther and some other writers in the Lutheran tradition, uh, Bonhoeffer among them, I'm comfortable saying that God in Christ dies at the crucifixion because if the divine nature is not on the cross, then that means you've just got the human nature on the cross. And if you've just got the human nature on the cross, that means you've just got a guy on the cross. And if that's just a guy, well, then guess what? Like we're still dead in our sins. That's just a human up there, right? So we have to somehow maintain that the divine nature is there at the moment of dereliction but we can't fall into another heresy called patropassianism, which is the heresy that the father suffers and dies on the cross. Hmm. So uh, it's not that I'm partial to it. It's that I think that idea is important, but we got to be really careful how we talk about it or else we end up saying something like God dies, um, which plainly is not the case and is a nonsense statement. Unless you're Nietzsche. Unless you're Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, there, there's a whole theological tradition that I, and I understand where they're coming from. I totally respect it. Uh, the sort of classical theist tradition associated with uh, thinkers like Thomas Aquinas and some other thinkers in his stream, they're really uncomfortable with the language of God's suffering at all because they are wanting to preserve God's sort of distinct transcendence. But I just don't know how you can read the New Testament and talk about God not suffering in Christ. So Yeah, isn't that the whole point? <laughs> I mean, even in the Old Testament, you see that, like God is grieved mm -hmm. by certain things that humans, human actions. Yeah. Uh, but, but Thomas takes these to be, uh, this word is hard to pronounce, anthropopathisms, right? So it's not that God is actually grieved. It's that the biblical writers use that language because that's how they illustrate what God, what God elects to do. Hmm. Uh, but he doesn't feel like humans feel. Giving human feelings to God. Right. Okay. Path. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's important. Uh, God does not feel like a human feels. I would say that we feel as persons because we are 
imperfect image bearers of a personal God. So it's not that he feels like we do. It's that we feel sort of like he does. Mm. Yeah. I better stop here before I confess a heresy, but that's... (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to trip you up. (laughs) Well, you know that like... uh, yeah, we talked about this in class. I don't know if you guys know Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes. Yeah, that movie rules. <laughs> and where he's he's trying to get across the uh, he's got to spell the name of God, mm-hmm. and he keeps misspelling it and almost falling through because he forgets how to spell it correctly. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's like doing theology is a bit like that, right? Like you're trying to spell the name of God, you're trying to speak faithfully about how God has revealed Himself, but there's lots of pitfalls, right? And you can take, it's not very hard to take a false step that is close, but you end mm-hmm. up falling through. So, what a great analogy. Nicely done. Indiana well, Jones for the win. Yeah, absolutely. Seeing <laughs> <laughs> those clapping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, well, Dr. Tafalowski, thank you so much for hanging out with us on the Attractive Christians podcast. Hey. I think you helped today to make Christianity a little bit more attractive and a little bit less repulsive. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me, guys. That was fun. Yeah. Any final words before we sign off? Uh, you can be whatever you want to be, which, nope, that's exactly <laughs> wrong. Uh, Jesus loves you. <laughs> Let's go with that. Ah, like Carl Bart. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Wasn't that Carl Bart who said, someone said, what's the most profound truth that you've learned studying Christianity? Oh, amazing. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Yeah. I don't know. That sounds, sounds like him. That's amazing. I don't know if it was Bart or someone else. I would like to believe that it is. Yeah, it sounds. It's true nonetheless, no matter who said it. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to the Attractive Christians podcast. Remember, you can always Gmail us, attractivechristians at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram or TikTok or or just delete all your social media. Yeah. Like, <laughs> If you want to be like Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, delete your social media, but still Gmail us. Or send a letter. Or send Even's a letter. personal mailbox. To my mailbox. I'm not giving my address out. <laughs> I'll do it. Just kidding. Give your address out? No, yours. Okay. <laughs> you can Gmail me for my address, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, I think. Oh, and we have a YouTube channel. So we're going to, we post on there sometimes. So yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, I'm Ethan Renault. We got Krista in the studio. And I'm Jules Dyrude. And Dr. Oh, Ryan Tavalowski. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Love you. Bye. <laughs> Like when I'm inhaling, apparently I make some sort of distinctive sound because the, all the... I heard that a lot. I never heard that in class, but yeah, on the on mic. mic. Yeah, because the, like, <gasps> the guy... The guy, uh, the guy who uh, edits all the video lectures we do at the seminary, he's like, do you know how many times I've edited that out of your... Do you know how many lectures? times you've breathed? Yeah. And he's like, I've spent like months and months just doing that. <laughs> yeah, sorry.